0: Our text this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 4 and uh, verses 7 through 10. Listen to the Word of God. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Father, we ask this morning that you would speak to us from your word. Let me disappear and let you be seen and wondered at and be glorified. It's in your name that we ask it, amen. Well in the year 66 AD, the Jews in Jerusalem rose up in rebellion against the Roman occupiers again. For years, there had been protests about Roman taxation, as well as a a pattern of withholding from the Romans what they were demanding in terms of tax revenue for the region. And finally, the Roman governor at the time, a man named Gessius Florus, who was, everybody agrees, an anti-Semite who just hated the people that he ruled, uh, he decided that he was done with it and that his boss was pressuring him to get the money, and so he was going to go get the money. Uh, Caesar Nero was his boss, and you didn't say no to Nero because he was insane, and he was the most powerful man in the world. And his boss said, cough up the money, and so Florus said, all right, so he did. And he took a garrison of soldiers, and he marched into the temple, and he entered the places that only the priests were allowed to go, and he emptied the temple treasury. And then he arrested several important Jewish leaders. And the Jews went nuts. They went absolutely nuts. They rose up in a fierce and a massive rebellion. They quickly overran the fortress Antonia, which is where the Roman soldiers in Jerusalem were garrisoned. And they slaughtered every Roman they could get their hands on. The grandson of Herod the Great, a a man named Herod Agrippa, had to flee because he was pro-Roman. And so it looked like the Jews had thrown the Romans out. And they had a, a, an army, the Romans had an army in Syria nearby in Damascus. And so they mobilized that army real quick to try and march back on Jerusalem and take it back. And the Jews figured out what they were gonna do and they ambushed that army and they defeated that army. And then the Jews were so confident that they had solved the Roman problem that they set up their own government And they proclaimed themselves to be an independent state. They began minting their own coins and everything else. Well, it took about a year for the Romans to gather their forces and to say, we're going to go get this key territory back. And that's what they did. So they, they began to move on Jerusalem. And instead of immediately going after Jerusalem, they were very smart. They realized Jerusalem can't survive without the countryside producing meat and grain and things like that. And the countryside is easy for us to take, so they did. They took all of the countryside in Galilee and Samaria and Judea all around there around the city of Jerusalem, and they utterly controlled it, and they bottled everybody up in Jerusalem, and then they began starving them out. and uh, the the person that was char- in charge of this was a general named Vespasian, and Vespasian had a son named Titus who was also a general, and they then began to squeeze everybody into Jerusalem, which was still fortified, and and then they they said, we're going to set up a siege, and we're going to conquer Jerusalem, we're going to starve them out, and then we're going to slaughter them when we can breach the wall. Well, this takes a a bit of time, and in the middle of all this, in 67 AD, Nero dies, and Vespasian is recalled to Rome, and he is made the next Caesar. Caesar. And Titus, his son, um, is left to handle the rest of the operation. And so Titus then begins to press in on Jerusalem, and and, 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 and he's working to take it, and the Jews are building walls as fast as they can, and the Romans are breaching them, and the Jews are inside, and they're fighting with each other, and one group of them actually burned all the the food supplies in the city. in order to get back at another group, which didn't seem very bright, and indeed it wasn't very bright. And, and Titus um, was still pressing from the outside. And finally the walls were breached. And Titus said to the Jews, okay, you can't win now, surrender. You're out of food, you're losing tactically, and you're losing strategically. You're gonna lose, so why don't you just surrender? And the Jews absolutely refused. They were gonna fight till the last man. And the temple of God is where they made their last stand. And by this time, the Roman soldiers were so insanely angry, they literally could not be controlled. They slaughtered over 10,000 people just in the temple courts. And then they plundered the temple. And against orders, they burned the temple to the ground. And then they pulled all the stones down. And so not one stone was left upon another. This took place in 70 AD. And in that act, they fulfilled the prophecy of Jesus 37 years earlier when he said, You see all these great stones? Not one of these will be left upon another. And so it was. Now, this was a great victory for the Romans. And as a reward, Titus, the general, was given what is called a triumph. A triumph is a special parade. In Roman times, a triumph was a parade uh, given to celebrate a victory and to honor the conquering general, and these were not like normal things. These were the kind of things that happened a couple of times in a century. They were huge The whole city and countryside would turn out, and there would be games, and there would be feasts, and there would be everything else, and and then they would have this parade. And the parade, as near as the archaeologists can tell, had a a very uh, special sort of structure. First in line came the enemy leaders and their allies, and other important enemy soldiers and military leaders, and usually their families, and they were in chains. And the population was expected to boo them and to spit on them and to throw things at them. They were jeered at. They were pelted with rocks. They were pelted with rotten food. They were pelted with dung. And at the end of the parade route, some of them would be executed along with their families, their wives and their children. Others would be held in cages and uh, exhibited like zoo animals. Next in line came the Roman soldiers who were carrying all of the enemy's weapons that they had had captured. And, And along with that, their armor, and then their silver, and their gold. And if the enemy had any interesting art or statues or other cultural artifacts, then these would be displayed as well. Then came large painted murals or models which depicted key battles and key moments in the war. It was kind of like, we don't, they didn't have like um, you know, video, right? So they would, they would mock up these elaborate giant carvings and things like that, or pictures, to show the population all these great moments in the war. And then came all of Rome's most important figures, figures like senators and even the emperor, and they were on foot. They were walking on foot. And then came the victorious Roman soldiers. And they were usually half drunk and they were chanting victory slogans and singing songs and things like that. And, and then came two flawless white oxen, which in the end were to be sacrificed to the gods. And then at the very end, the very last person, came the rock star that everyone came to see. The man of the hour, the victorious general, and he was wearing a victor's crown, and he was wearing a special purple toga that he was only supposed to wear on that day and then never, ever again, because on that one day, this guy was considered a demigod. He was considered the most important person alive. He was considered more important than the, than the emperor, even, or the Roman Senate. And so they they were like, yeah, you can have your day, but then after that, you're gonna put this thing on display in your living room and you're never gonna wear it again because if you wear it again, you're making claims that you're the most important person in the empire on another day besides this day. And that might look like you're trying to take control and stage a coup, so we'll probably just kill you immediately if we see you wearing this thing around any place else. So, but on that day, he got to wear that special robe and that special crown, and the people went wild. The chariot that he was in was the equivalent of a Rolls Royce or a Maybach, and, and it was pulled by these beautiful horses, and they, they adored this man. They worshipped him, and so heady was the praise that they were heaping on him, and so convincing were the cries of divinity from the adoring crowd that very often there would be a trusted slave on the chariot with him. And that slave's job was to whisper in his ear a little Latin phrase, memento mori. Over and over again, memento mori. Remember that you are mortal. Remember that you will die. Don't let all of this go to your head. Remember that you will die. And that was to try to keep him from drinking the Kool-Aid and thinking more of himself than he ought and do something stupid. And then at the end, he would distribute the enemy's wealth to key soldiers, key political allies, key religious institutions or temples, and even to the general public. And when we talk about distributing the wealth, we're talking about the wealth of an entire conquered nation. It was so much money. The, the historians talk about the, uh, the triumph that Caesar Augustus was given after he conquered Egypt. This was before he was Caesar and uh, he was a general and he conquered Egypt. And there was so much money handed out at this triumph parade and immediately after that interest rates collapsed because nobody needed to borrow money anymore. And the price of land around the city of Rome skyrocketed. And you couldn't buy a piece of land because everybody had money and everybody wanted that land. Well, a few years after the triumph of Titus, an arch was actually erected to honor him and to commemorate the celebration. And uh, I, I do believe we have pictures of that. Uh, do we have pictures of that? The arch, yep, yeah. there's the arch of uh, the triumph of Titus. And then on the inside of the arch, you can kind of, it's been weathered, but you can kind of make out um, the, the scene of the parade. And you will see at the front of the line, those are two Jewish people and their arms are tied behind their backs. They're on their way to execution. And then following them is a group of Roman soldiers and they actually have the menorah, the golden lampstand from the temple. They're carrying that as a piece of of war triumph, as a piece of booty. And and then uh, this this was stored in the holy place. This was the the temple lampstand. This was made of solid gold. It was about six feet high. Now, why did I tell you all of that? Well, because in this passage, in Ephesians chapter 4, we're allowed to peel back the curtain that separates the physical world from the spiritual world. And in particular, we are shown that the risen Christ was given a triumph, a parade much like the, the parade of Titus, a victory parade. He was given this victory parade by his heavenly father. And so Paul is making use here of a little bit of Psalm 68, which talks about one of these things uh, in in the life of David, And, and it talks about God coming and occupying Mount Zion, where the temple would be built. And God is accompanied by thousands of chariots, and He's leading a host of captives of some sort. And God is receiving gifts or tribute even from the rebellious. And Paul is saying that psalm is a prophecy about Jesus. And what does this passage tell us about our Lord and about his triumphant victory parade? Well, let me take things in a slightly different order than the scriptures give them to us in Ephesians chapter 4. Notice first of all that Paul makes a big deal about the word ascended. Christ ascended. Now, why is that important? Well, Christ, as the second person of the Trinity, as the pre-incarnate Word, was one who dwelt in the highest place that there was. And He was above all, and He was over all. There was no place for Him to ascend to. The elevator didn't go any higher than where Christ dwelt with the Father and the Spirit. And so the only way for this Christ to ascend anywhere was for him to first descend. And that is exactly what Christ did, isn't it? He descended in every sense of the word. He left his dignity. He left his splendor, he left his glory, he left his honor, he left the the legions of angels who worshipped him and attended to him. He left all that behind. It says in Philippians 2, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped at, a thing to be held on to. And instead he emptied himself and he took on the form of a slave. Slave. Our modern English versions pretty it up a little bit. They say took on the form of a servant, but the Greek word is doulos, and it means a slave. So Jesus took the form of a slave, and we see that crystallized in this one moment in the life of Jesus when he's in the upper room, and none of the disciples will wash each other's feet. And Jesus comes down from the high place, the table, and he strips off his robes, and he girds himself with a towel and takes a basin of water and does the literal work of a slave to these people who he created, who he sustains, who he taught, who he discipled. And they still hadn't learned the things they needed to learn from him, or they wouldn't have been in the place that they were grumbling about dirty feet. And so this Jesus took his, all of his glory and he descended in this one moment as low as you could go in that society. The the job of washing the feet was like the job of the lowest slave in the household. And Jesus took on the form of a slave. And he emptied himself. And he made himself nothing. And he submitted. He submitted to a birth and a development like any normal human child. He submitted to his parents. He submitted to the indignities of poverty and living in an occupied country where enemy soldiers are clanking around on the streets day in and day out. He submitted to hard labor in the hot sun and the freezing cold. He endured opposition and disrespect and hatred and abandonment and betrayal. He submitted to it, didn't complain. He submitted to arrest, to a beating, He submitted to an unjust trial, a kangaroo court that was rigged against him and wasn't even supposed to be meeting when it was. He submitted to torture. And he submitted to death, to a very brutal death. So in other words, he went from as high as you can go to as low as you can go. And Paul talks about his descent into, quote, the lower regions the earth." Now, this could refer to his body lying in the grave. It could be a a, a reference to the widespread belief in the ancient world that the abode of the dead was located deep underground. Indeed, our our modern English words, hell and hole, both come from the same ancient Norse word, and they both basically mean the same thing, a hole. Or it could be a reference to his mother's womb. Uh, David talked about this. He talked this way in in Psalm 139. If you want to look there really quickly, you can. And if you don't, you can just sit there quietly while I find it and read it to you. But in Psalm 139 and in verses 13 through 15, uh, David says, For you formed my inward parts, and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. So the, 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 David is using the, the the figure of the earth to talk about his being knit together in his mother's womb. I, I tend to think it's just a, a reference to the grave. But regardless, they all represent almost an infinite step down, an abandonment of self, an abandonment of self-will. In Reformed theology, we refer to the estates of Christ. And the estates of Christ are his humiliation and his exaltation. In this part of this passage, we are talking about his humiliation. It is humiliating in the purest and truest sense of the word. For Christ to do what He did, and to become incarnate, and to submit to what He submitted to. This is the pattern for us, as well. Jesus teaches us with His very body that if we want to go up, the way up is down at first. So you, you want to get, you want to go up? You go up by going down. That in the economy of heaven, humiliation is the prerequisite for exaltation. That our, that our very salvation comes as a result of our God humbling himself and then inviting us to imitate him. You know, it's interesting that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are you when people hate you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says rejoice and be glad because you're showing yourself to be sons of the Father who is in heaven. In other words, he's saying the pattern to power, the pattern to true glory in the heavenlies, the pattern for a life that is pleasing to God and at rest in the world is a life where you pour yourself out and you submit to all kinds of things that you don't think you should have to submit to. And then in the midst of doing that, you're at rest in the Lord because you know He's caring for you. And in the midst of that, you're at peace. And you know God is going to take care of you, and He's going to take care of the people who are saying and doing the bad things. It's not your job. You don't worry about it. Your job is to bless them who curse you and to do good to them who hate you and to to work for the good of those who despitefully use you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. And God is so, so pleased when he sees us following this divine pattern, this pattern of humility. And so when he sees this, he quietly runs to your side, and he provides for you, and he makes plans to exalt you. He says what he says in Psalm ninety-one, fourteen. because he has set his eyes upon me, therefore I will deliver him and I will set him on the high place because he knows my name. There are literally dozens of passages in the scripture that, that promise that if you humble yourself, that God will deliver you and exalt you and preserve you and rescue you and provide for you. Where spiritual things are concerned, this humility is the key that opens every lock. There was an old Christian from the early Middle Ages, a man named Thomas Kempis, and he wrote this. He said, choose evermore rather to have less than more. Seek ever the lower place and to be under all. Desire ever to pray that the will of God be all and wholly done. So such a one enters the land of peace and quiet. In other words, you want peace in your heart in the midst of all these circumstances, just seek the lowest place. Just disengage from this worldly struggle to to prove that you're you're significant and that you're wealthy and that you ought to be admired and and all these other sorts of things. Just unplug from all that and just take the lowest place and rest and, and you will find rest for your soul in that. Now, this humiliation of Christ is not just beautiful, it's not just astonishing, it is also a powerful spiritual weapon. In the depths of the humiliation of Christ, he won a mighty victory in a great war, and it's the war that ends all wars. And thus, we're told then that he ascended, and he ascended not alone, but leading a great train. Of utterly defeated and utterly humiliated captives. And in Hebrews twelve twenty two, it tells us that the angels have all turned out in heaven in their festal, in a festal gathering. And they're joined there by the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and by the spirits of just men made perfect. That's what it says in Hebrews twelve twenty-two. All of heaven turns out to watch the parade and to see the captives. And who are the captives that are in that parade? Well, the devil is in that parade. At the head of the line comes the devil, the vanquished foe who ruled over us by fear of death and by the lie that God is untrustworthy. He's the enemy of our souls. He's our first prince because he captures us at birth. He is the strong man that Jesus speaks of who keeps us locked in his house as goods. He is a cruel master. He is a proud master. He is a liar. He tempts us with happiness and fulfillment but that's only bait on a hook and the minute we take the bait the hook is set in our jaw and he reels us in to do horrible things with us and the crucified one binds the strong man in chains and he plunders the goods out of his house he he rescues us from the strong man's castle The devil and his ugly angels are are at the front of the parade and there will be a day when the parade is finished and they will be executed, so to speak. They will be cast into a lake of fire where the burning never ends. That's where the enemies go. Well, there's another captive too right behind the devil and that's sin and the power of sin. And Jesus breaks the power of sin over those whom he releases He rescues us from the jaws of a force which ravishes us and dominates us and causes pain and causes destruction everywhere in our lives. In the words of the old Wesley hymn, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and darkest night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray, and I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. The only way you were able to do that is because Jesus broke the power of sin that held you in its grip. Have you forgotten, Christian? Have you forgotten what it's like to be a slave to sin and a slave to self, to have no other way of living except as a slave to your passions, your will, your desires? Even as you knew that you're in the depths of your being, that your, your desires and the, the living out of your desires was destroying you and those you love around you, and yet you couldn't quit. You were enslaved. You were compelled by restless desires that you tried to satisfy, but which could never be satisfied. You had gangrene of the soul. You had leprosy of the heart. I don't know if you've ever seen gangrene. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. We had a hospice patient that had gangrene and they didn't want to treat it. They didn't want to have their leg amputated. They wanted, it to, they wanted to die of sepsis and they were at the hospice house and you could smell it for all, all through the whole place. They had to, when the, when the patient finally was moved out, they, they had to, to tear all the carpet out and paint the walls with kills and seal everything up because they couldn't get the smell out. It was vile. You've got gangrene of the soul before Jesus comes and breaks this power. And Jesus comes and he, he breaks the power and he says, be free. Jesus came and spoke to your heart like he did to the raging storm at the sea and, uh, of the sea and he says, peace, be still. He comes to you like he came to so many others and says, do you want to be whole? He comes to you and he says to the others around you, unbind him and let him go as he did to Lazarus walking out of that grave he says rise and walk like he did to so many others he says your sins are forgiven you he breaks the power of canceled sin he sets the prisoner free his blood can make the foulest clean his blood availed for me that's what the hymn writer says yes sin is a captive trudging behind all the demons And then comes the last enemy. That last enemy is death. He destroys death. He makes our spirit alive forever. He promises to raise our mortal bodies from the grave and transform them. He'll transform them to be like his body when it got out of the grave. But he does even more than that. You will still taste death on this side, but but Jesus actually says you won't taste it. Your body will die but the part of you that is aware and suffers and thinks and all that. The part of you that lives on won't understand, won't know, won't feel what's going on. Jesus actually says that. And the Pharisees say, now we know you're nuts. You're saying that whoever obeys your teaching will never taste death. And Jesus says, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. You're not going to die in the way that you think about dying. You may say to yourself, well, the devil's still prowling around. Sin still exists in the the world and in my heart, and somebody I love just died. So how in the world are these things vanquished foes? Well, there's a curious relationship between the physical world and the spiritual world. In the physical world, things happen in a sequence, and we call that flow of sequences time. And in time, there are things that happened in the past are happening right now and will happen in the future. And that's what it is to be in time. But God is not in time. God is, it's, it's not like that in the spiritual world. In God's perception, all things and all times are present to Him at once. It's all now to Him. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, Miracles, in, in a little essay, and I would encourage you to to read it, a little part of that book. And so from God's perspective, one of His moments contains all of our moments. And so in the mind of God, which is the important thing, in the mind of God, all of these things are finished and accomplished. It's just that we haven't caught up to reality yet. Our history hasn't played out yet, but there's no question that it will. There's no question of contingency. There's no question of might or might not. There is just what will be. Now, that creates all sorts of tensions in our thought, and that's okay. Most of those are like optical illusions. The Christ who was crucified in 33 AD to us in the book of Revelation is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world in the heavenlies. And that's just how things are. That's, we don't have access to that. And it's interesting that the closest that we have to access is to read something like the book of Revelation. And we try and read Revelation like it's linear, because that's how we experience time, like there's a flow of events. But the book of Revelation keeps having all these weird loops back on itself. And, and that's because in heaven, things are not linear in the way that they are here. Well, there's just one last thing Jesus brings with his victory parade. And I'm just going to mention it in closing because we'll take it up more fulsomely when we come back to this text. I think next week it's, Next week is my 30th anniversary on July 10th. And so we're going to be gone and I'm going to give you a microwave sermon because I don't have time. I don't have time to write one this week. So we won't take this up next week. We'll take it up the week after that. But But it says... He ascended on high, and he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men, gifts to men. He came bearing gifts, not for God, not for angels, but for us. Unlike the plunder of Egypt described uh, in the records of Caesar Augustus, they are rich, rich gifts. Gifts beyond calculating in terms of their value. That he, he gave you and will give you everything you need. And then when you die and are united to him, it'll just be everything. He'll give you everything. You will lack no good thing in your earthly pilgrimage and you will lack no good thing in the heavenlies. Let me close with just a brief little story about our conquering Christ with all the worldly things set against him and opposing him. This is from a book by Joel C. Rosenberg called Inside the Revolution. How the followers of jihad, Jefferson and Jesus are battling to dominate the Middle East and transform the world. In the middle of nowhere, Two Christians were driving in the mountains of Iran in a car that was full of Bibles. Without warning, the steering wheel jammed, and they were forced to the side of the road. Suddenly, an old man was knocking at the car's window, asking them where the books were. Confused, they asked him what books he was referring to, and he responded, the books about Jesus. Continuing, the old man had said that an angel recently appeared to him in a vision and shared about Jesus. The man later discovered that everyone in his village had just had the very same vision, and they had all believed in Jesus. Now the old man had a village full of infant Christians who had no idea what to do next. The old man shared that in another dream, Jesus told him to walk down the mountain and stand beside the road and someone would bring him books about Jesus. He obeyed and he selected the spot where he would stand and just as expected a supply of Bibles written in their language was provided for his village. Though the wrong seems oft so strong he is the ruler yet. All the Revolutionary Guard and all the government of Iran is doing everything they can in the name of their vile religion to stamp out anything about Jesus. It's, they, they will kill you as a Muslim if you, if you convert from Islam to Christianity. They will kill you for apostasy. And you would think, how in the world? They can't have missionaries. They can't have churches. You think, how in the world is Jesus ever going to reach these people? And Jesus says, I'll do it, just watch. And boom, a whole village full of infant Christians is is converted and comes into the kingdom of God. And then they're given scriptures in their own language. And human beings had hardly anything to do with it. He must reign until he puts the enemies under his feet and he gives it all to God. Says, God, I've won the great victory of history. Here it is. And God puts everything under him and he puts himself under God and God is all and in all. And we cry glory, glory. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.